Welcome to the Dr. Dad's Podcast, where a naturopath and chiropractor come together each week to share lifestyle medicine, health advice, and inspiring interviews with some of the top experts in health and wellness, bringing you the latest in nutrition, exercise, ancient healing, toxins and detox, your microbiome, mindset, hormones, brain, and much more. Stay tuned. We're going to teach you how to experience growth daily. All right. Good afternoon, everybody. We got the Dr. Dads here with an amazing guest that we're super excited to chat with today, Cynthia Thurlow, nurse practitioner. And um, David, how's everything going down south right now for you, buddy? It's hot, brother. I thought, the, <laughs> I thought the summer was over, but it came back with a vengeance and we're hitting like 106, 105. So it's been, oh, wow. been warm, man. This morning, walking into the office, I was sweating already. So <laughs> yeah. Lucky you. Summer's still alive and thriving where you're at. I'm missing that Vancouver coolness that I had right. a couple months ago, man. Yeah, yeah. It feels like yeah. Vancouver here in Washington, D.C. Uh, it's in the 70s. We had a cold front. And so for us, this is cold this time of the year, but I'm really enjoying it. It feels like late September. It's nice. Wow. I'm so jealous right now. Thank you all for that. Yeah. <laughs> right. Just, you can just picture it in your mind's eye. Yes. Coolness. So Cynthia is here with us today. So I'm going to tell you a little bit about her and, and her history. And then we're going to dive into some amazing conversations. So Cynthia is a nurse practitioner, an entrepreneur, functional nutritionist, and a certified wellness coach. She's been helping women find wellness through the healing power of nutrition and solving health problems from the inside out, which is so important. And she's not just a, a, a nutritionist, or sorry, a nurse practitioner. She's also a mom. She's a wife. And she has all boys. And, and my wife can relate because she's got all boys as well. <laughs> uh, so Cynthia... Yeah, exactly. You guys, you guys are very strong to be able to handle that many boys. Uh, so she's worked in clinical medicine, both in the ER and cardiology for over 20 years. The power of Western medicine's approach to acute and life-threatening disease and emergencies is undeniable. However, she started to question the approach to ongoing symptom management in chronic health problems. She started to think more about the root causes and chronic health problems of her patients became passionate about learning about how she could help her family, her patients, the community, the clients, all suffering from needlessly in this space uh, where, unfortunately, conventional medicine isn't um, at the top of its game. So, Cynthia, we're so honored to have you here. Um, and not on top of that, I mean, if you get the chance, well, you know, stop what you're doing right now, go watch Cynthia on her TED Talk, learn a little bit more about what she's doing, because we're going to take what she learned or what she shared there, and dive into a whole lot deeper information. So for those of you who are still here and haven't switched over to the TED Talk right away, Cynthia, please dive in and tell us a little bit more about that transition. How does a nurse practitioner working in conventional cardiology, et cetera, move into this field of wellness? Yeah, I mean, I think the thing that, that struck me at some point, I mean, I had been a nurse practitioner for a while, and and I've always had always done cardiology. I was really passionate about um the heart. I just found it fascinating. There was, you know, I, I love the adrenaline fueled experience of being in the hospital dealing with acutely sick patients. I love being in clinic with my patients. But over time, I, I grew increasingly frustrated with the fact that we were so focused on pill symptomatology, you know, meaning someone comes in with a symptom, there has to be a pill that will fix the symptom. And the fact that I was noticing that my patients, when I would talk to them about diet and nutrition, or even just moving their bodies or getting more sleep, 90% of them tuned me out because we've really conditioned our patients to be very focused on a pill solution as opposed to a lifestyle solution. But the patients of mine that were willing to do the work would suddenly need less blood pressure medicine. Maybe they made a reduction in their statins, less diabetic medication or even insulin. And so I just grew increasingly uh, disenfranchised with the concept of writing prescriptions. And I, I tell people very openly, I got tired of writing scripts because that's what you do all day long. That's all I did was write prescriptions. And I started to really question quite a bit when one of my children was diagnosed with life-threatening food allergies. It caused me to look a little deeper. And there was a book that um, I think is pivotal for me. It's, it's by Robin O'Brien called The Unhealthy Truth. And it took me about a week to read the book, not because it's very long, but because I was so angry when I started making these connections about the foods we were eating and why they were having this rampant uptick in um, allergies and sensitivities and autoimmune issues and obesity and just all these things. And that book changed my life. I always say for the better because it suddenly got me thinking about what would be the next step. I knew that 
Um, you know, I, I was a great nurse practitioner. I knew a lot about cardiology. Obviously, I, I'm a total adrenaline junkie. But I started to be thinking much more thoughtfully about um, how to really look at long-term wellness. And I've always been very fit. So is my husband. Um, but I started to really look at our diet and nutrition and thinking that some of the things we were eating were so healthy and realizing after the fact they really weren't, excuse me, really weren't. Um, and that really pushed me to initially I became a wellness coach and that was kind of interesting, but that didn't really do it for me. But food, like really talking to people about food lit me up. And so becoming functionally trained in nutrition, I didn't want to do functional medicine training largely because I already invested a huge amount of money in my education. And I just felt like, you know, eventually my kids have to go to college. I'm not looking to, uh, you know, spend as much money as I did on my undergraduate education on this, but I found, you know, food is really the root for so many issues. And so I kind of dove into it and my colleagues were really supportive. I mean, that's the thing that I have to really say is that a lot of the referrals I get are from the same people I work side by side with in multiple specialties. There's a lot of respect for what I'm doing. And so I took a huge leap of faith three years ago, three and a half years ago, and left clinical medicine. And that was a very hard decision to make, but absolutely the right decision. Um, there have been so many things. The universe has kind of validated this decision on so many levels for me that uh, there's no question this is the path I'm meant to be on. And I always say that, you know, I have my boys and I always say I, I was meant to be their mom and I was meant to be married to my husband. But what I was really meant to do in terms of my life service is the work I'm doing now because it's, I can impact so many more people than just sitting in a large cardiology group um, in Washington, D.C. So for me, it was really absolutely the next best step. Amazing. I'm curious, how, how old was your son? Or was it your, yeah, was it your youngest son or your oldest son? And how My old, oldest son. So how old was he when you, when you started to start to question things a little bit more? Um, well, when he was four months old, and my, so I breastfed both my, my kids till they were a little over a year. Uh, so when he was four months old, he started developing, I mean, horrendous eczema. I never, never seen a kid with eczema as bad as he had. Wow. And, you know, I took him my typical, bring him to the pediatrician, new parent, you know, doubting my, you know, intuitiveness. And I asked very innocently, do you think it's something I'm eating? Because he's exclusively breastfed. Could it be something I'm eating that's making him so sick? Mm -hmm. Nope. Nope, this is just, you know, this is just one of those things. It's winter time. He's got dry skin. And so, you know, they would prescribe these high potency, you know, corticosteroids that we would put on his skin, which of course improved things until he got another flare. And so I kept asking, is it food? Could it be food? Switched pediatricians, still got the same answers. And that's what got me really interested in, you know, speaking to other people. We I brought him to the allergist because I was concerned. I said, you know, if I'm if I'm eating something that's making him sick or if he's allergic to something I'm unaware of. And the allergist actually said, um, she did blood work in addition to doing some skin testing, she said, these results can't be correct. They're so they're so high, you know, it was RAS testing. Can't be this can't possibly let's recheck him in a couple months. And in a couple months, they were just as high. And she said, and her words were, there's no way you can avoid all of these allergens. You just have to carry EpiPens and pray. Wow. And that left an indelible impression on me because I then became fearful. I was fearful to take my child out to eat. I was fearful to go out to eat with him. I felt like I wanted to put him in a bubble. And then I had a second child and I was like, I can't live this way. And so I think for myself, so much of my passion and concerns about food are really the fact that there's so many people navigating, trying to live lives where food really makes them very sick. And so uh, I got to a point where we could navigate going out to eat and preparing things at home. But it was a couple years where we were very fearful. And my husband had never seen an anaphylaxis. He had never seen a life-threatening food allergy. I had. I'd seen many of those in the ER. Had a healthy amount of respect for anaphylaxis. And you read you read about people who, even if they get EpiPens, die before they get to the hospital. So for me, it was years of, a couple of years of being in fear. And then I was like, my typical, you know, I grew up in New Jersey. I was like, screw this. There has to be a better way. And so that kind of started the journey of, you know, really, you know, looking more closely and more thoughtfully at everything we were looking, we were doing and looking at the food supply and Robin and Brian's book. I, and I get no kickbacks from her recommending her books. I just respect her enormously you know, this growing awareness that consumers really want more for themselves, more for their families. Um, they want to be able to eat food and not be fearful of, you know, making someone, you know, in, in a life-threatening situation or just making themselves sick. Mm -hmm. 
And for someone who's got resources, I mean, you're, this is just you speaking to that state of fear as a parent, seeing your kid struggle and not really knowing, not having the answers, not knowing everything you do about it and trying to manage that. I mean, that's, that's hard for anybody. Yes. Um, the fact that you had those resources just made it all the more real that, wow, this is happening to so mm-hmm. many people all over the world. Yeah. Um, well, yeah. we start to think about the cost of EpiPens, you know, a few years ago. So my, you know, if you, anyone that's listening, if you have a child with, with allergies, you carry EpiPens like they're water. You know, you have to carry one with you. They have to go to school with them. They have to go everywhere they go. And so uh, a few years ago, it was costing people hundreds and hundreds of dollars to get one set of EpiPens. And I said to the pharmacist, I was like, what are people doing that don't have the money? Like we could spend $200 on a couple sets of EpiPens. But I said, I'm thinking about the average human being, the average person that's living in this country, you know, even indigent people, how are they paying for these things? And they said, they just don't. And I said, that broke my heart. I was like, that's unacceptable that we have a medical model that makes, you know, medications, whether it be insulin or EpiPens, so expensive. And I mean, I fired off, you know, emails and messages and, you know, tweeted stuff. I mean, I'm just, I tend to be very um, proactive as opposed to reactive. I'm like, this is unacceptable. Um, there are probably far more families that can't afford to purchase EpiPens than there are that can. This is just absolutely unacceptable. And, and recognizing that, you know, that the CEO of the company that manufactures EpiPens was making, she was just making an absolute killing in terms of profits. And I was like, this is unconscionable. Mm-hmm. Um, so I could talk, I could get on a total soapbox about that. But yes, it's, it's unbelievable. It really is. So I'm curious uh, on this journey you took with your son, how did that all play out? So you started kind of connecting the dots. You started looking for new solutions. I'd imagine you took more of a functional medicine approach Mm -hmm. at this point, which was probably not the case of your training in conventional medicine, right? And so just take us on a little, I guess, uh, quick cliff notes version of of how that all played out for your son and, and how you connected those dots and how, you know, just how he's doing now. And Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, it's a great question. So obviously, we radically changed our diets, um, meaning we were making not that I ever ate badly. Let's be let's be real. I've always been healthy, healthy weight, all those things. Uh, but I started making a lot of things from scratch. I started learning about alternatives to gluten as an option. You know, he has tree nut and peanut allergies, so that limit. You always say it's like your world gets a little small when you're trying to eat gluten free and you're trying not to use rice flours. And so we got savvy with baking with cassava flour, and um, just learning to really make a lot of stuff from scratch, which I know is not like super sexy, and people hear that, they're like, I don't have time for that. I get it, but when your kid can't eat what's available, uh, I didn't want him to feel like he was missing out. If he went to a birthday party, we always had to bring separate food for him. We always had to bring um, alternative like fun foods for him just so he could enjoy himself. But you know, I think it started with the food, and then um, you know, just aligning myself. You know, one of the things that I got very actively involved with was a um, community-based program called Real Food for Kids. And so a lot of advocacy for children and nutrition, um, working with Title I schools to try to bring programs there, trying to change the options that were available at the schools that my children were enrolled in. You know, I'm in the, I'm in the Washington D suburbs, but we're in a county that has a lot of farming. And so we were trying to get meat sourced locally, vegetables you know, grown sourced and sourced locally to be made available for children. So I think a lot of what that drove for me um, was the advocacy piece, but also learning how to really cook, uh, really cook from scratch and you know, trying out recipes and getting him involved in the kitchen and um, you know, talking to people that, that had similar issues. There are a lot of people in my area who we're also very passionate, but we found that there was a lot of safety in numbers. So if we were trying to advocate for our children and we had a large amount of community members that would show up at a board of supervisors meeting, that was powerful as opposed to one voice trying to advocate for their child, you know, trying to advocate for stronger um, allergy guidelines for children in schools. Um, you know, I think when you're talking about healing the gut, you're really looking at gut health. And so we did a lot of diagnostic testing, um, food sensitivity testing, in addition to allergy testing. Uh, we did a you know a pretty powerful test called the GI Map. That's only been out for a few years, but I think that's the best 
I think that's the gold standard stool test, but really diving in to look at what's going on with his gut. And, and he's a competitive swimmer. I'll give you an example. A lot of bugs in the pool, which is disgusting to think about. You know, chlorine only kills so much. So he's constantly exposed to parasites and, you know, other types of unsightly uh, microorganisms on a regular basis. So, you know, gut health has a lot to do with, you know, can you fight off those infections? And we've done a ton of work on his gut. Um, we found out he had SIBO, which is not something that just comes up. That's not an acute thing. That's, that's chronic. It's like the domino effect. And so we very diligently have addressed he had H. pylori, he had parasites, um, he had SIBO, and we've addressed these things very methodically. And so to get back to your original question, um, it always goes, always starts with food, you know, removing the inflammatory foods, um, addressing, you know, any imbalances that are there. I mean, we've done more gut healing on this kiddo. And it, it's been interesting to see, because there are so many non-pharmaceuticals that you can use that are that were probably in vogue before we had antibiotics. And so using things like berberine, um, as an example, or, you know, things that are available that can be highly antimicrobial in nature and can help clean up what's going on in the gut. And so, you know, through, through his journey, um, I became more impassioned about wanting to help people and, and find alternatives. So, you know, I, I think that there's a lot about functional medicine that I find utterly, utterly fascinating. You know, it really does provide a different lens with which to look at, uh, you know, um, symptoms and, um, you know, deep dive a little bit more into causes, but there's still, there's obviously still a place for traditional medicine. I, I, I will be the first person to say, if you have, you're sick and you need surgery or you've got, you know, a, an urgent need, that is absolutely what I think Western medicine really shines with that you, you don't want to not have one without the other, but, you know, finding a way to kind of bridge them both, I think is really critical. Well, and, I, and, and on that note, I have a quick question or thought mm -hmm. and like to hear your thoughts on this. So I, I, I agree with you. You know, there are needs for conventional medicine, like surgery, like you're saying, mm -hmm. or certain drug therapies, you know, based off certain diseases and where they're at as far as severity. But, you know, you, you went from learning one piece and you've kind of dipped into the other. And, and the, the chronic degenerative stuff that we see now that many people are suffering with from autoimmune to some of these other problems, where would you say conventional medicine has a place with stuff like that? Hmm. That's tough because I really feel like the, the two things that are missing from the Western medicine piece is prevention and chronic disease management. So I think we've largely convinced our patient population that a pill will solve everything. And so really there's, there's a need. I mean, there absolutely is a need for, um, you know, pharmaceuticals at specific, you know, intervals. But I, I just think that we don't talk to our patients enough about sleep and stress management and exercise and dietary management. And so that's the, the side of functional medicine that I think is really critical. And I do think there are a lot of traditionally Western medicine trained providers, because I know so many of them personally that are really trying to bridge that gap. They, they do see the merits in both sides. I use diabetes as the best example or the worst example of, you know, we wait until someone really has full-blown diabetes to address things instead of addressing the insulin resistance. I mean, how many times, so this will really date me, when I finished my nurse practitioner program a long time ago, um, the feeling was if you had a fasting glucose up to 140, or less, you didn't have diabetes. Well, now, I mean, those numbers creep now, it's like 80 to 90. I mean, so really things have come full circle. We're learning a whole lot more, but I feel like diabetes is a really great example of something that we wait till someone has full-blown diabetes before we start to worry about things. I can't tell you how many people, sorry. I can't tell you how many people I interact with and they'll say, oh, my hemoglobin A1C is six. I'm like, that's not good. Mm -hmm. You know, that's, that's something we, we need to be reactionary about that. We don't wait till it gets to be seven and say, okay, now you have diabetes. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I think that it's a very delicate balance because I, I bel truly believe a lot of the very traditional Western medicine trained providers that hold very tightly to that paradigm really struggle. And they'll say it's woo woo. They'll say it's, you know, black magic. They'll say that you're wrong. You know, they don't want to think about those other things. And I always say, Part of what I was trained in, and I trained at a big research hospital, I was taught to question everything. I question everything, even though, you know, I'm a nurse practitioner, I'm not an MD, 
uh, there are times where I will take heat on social media because people say, well, you're, you're not a physician. And I'm like, that's true. I'm not a physician, but I do have a brain and I do question everything. Mm -hmm. And so for me, I look at it as an evolution. Like I, I met with um, some alumni at my university I attended and they were saying, you are, you are a perfect consummate example of a Hopkins nurse because you question everything. Like that's exactly, you're cutting edge, you're doing things differently, you're blazing your own path. And I said, because that's what's best for the people that I work with. Mm -hmm. It's so much better for me to evolve as an individual and not play it safe and not be a sheep. Like I tell my kids, do not be a sheep. Like I will always support them. But I'm like, you should question things. If it doesn't seem right, you know, I, I, again, we go back to the example of diabetes. How many people do we let get full-blown diabetes before we start telling them you should be eating low carb, you should, you know, be going ketogenic, you should uh, be working on your gut health, you should be dialing in on your sleep and your stress and all these other things way before you've got full-blown diabetes. Mm -hmm. um, there's so many other ways to address that. Um, and I've had really, really great results with things like berberine is so, um, I just keep using that as an example. Berberine is such a great agent to add in for someone that's dealing with insulin resistance. A lot of my 40-ish women that I work with um, really start be to become insulin resistant as they become perimenopausal. And so really critical thing that you can, you know, kind of add in if it's appropriate for you to be doing. Definitely discuss that with your healthcare provider. Yeah, beautiful because, I mean, the, the conventional model uses the same hormone that, that's out of whack within the individual. So the treatment mm -hmm. for type 2 diabetes is more insulin. Yep. Insulin resistance is the problem. So you, you started to segue into something really important, which is your journey over the last few years, which mm -hmm. is which has drove you into helping correct insulin resistance through the use of uh, fasting and inter inter intermittent fasting specifically. So tell us a little bit about that segue um, into, into that world. Yeah, you know, I, I have to laugh because I was initially very skeptical. This is my t traditional, I'm skeptical, then I try it, then I figure out whether or not it works. Um, so with tremendous skepticism, in the same month, I had both a colleague and my personal trainer tell me that I should try intermittent fasting, which I thought was crazy, like absolutely crazy. Um, and so I initially, you know, tried it on myself. Right there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. My dogs don't like intermittent fasting. Um, sorry. It, this That's is good. typical. So, so what it came down to was someone, in, someone brought up the concept. I did a little bit of research. I decided to try it out. I thought I might die if I didn't eat breakfast because we're so conditioned to believe breakfast is the most important meal of the day, which is complete BS. And then I started doing it. And then I had so much mental clarity. Like for me, the first thing I noticed was, oh my gosh, I have so much energy. I can go to the gym fasted. I can work out fast. I used to be one of those people that would show up at the gym. I'd have a protein shake going to the gym and a protein shake after, and then I'd go to the hospital. And so all of a sudden, I had all this energy. I had so much mental clarity. I got so much done in the morning. And that got the ball kind of rolling. And then I started talking a little bit about it with my clients, some of which were receptive, some of which were not. And then I started writing about it and then it kind of steamrolled and, and, you know, I, I have done a lot of local TV work. And so one of the first segments I ever did was I pitched the idea about intermittent fasting and that moved on. Um, and then the funny thing is I'm an introvert, which people sometimes find surprising. And my team hates when I use that word because they have a different connotation of introvert. Um, I wanted to do a Ted talk. And so I, the reason why I wanted to do Ted talk is I'm an introvert and I wanted to do something that would scare me a little bit. And so we started the application process, which is very lengthy. And I think most people don't realize that. And you go through many, many rejections before you actually get a talk. And at the time, I wasn't going to talk about intermittent fasting. I got to talk about a different topic. And then I got offered a second talk and I needed to come up with another topic. And I said to my husband one night, what do I know a lot about? And he goes, oh God, intermittent fasting, it's all you talk about. And so, um, so my second talk, my second TED talk was about intermittent fasting. And I think the the really interesting part of that talk in particular, and you want to talk about Western medicine saving your life. I had gone on vacation with my husband and within 48 hours I was in the hospital and I, I was very, very sick. I, I almost died. And so I spent 13 days in the hospital, lost 13 pounds, um, had to delay having surgery. Uh, and in between I did a Ted talk, you know, my whole mindset when I was in the hospital was this whole concept of surrender 
you know, surrender on a physical, emotional, and spiritual level, because having always been very healthy, we take our health for granted. So we don't have our health. Mm-hmm. And, you know, my surgeons are spinning their brains trying to figure out like, why are you so sick? We just can't figure this out. And so in my mind, I was like, I want to get home to my family. And I was like, I'll be goddamned. If I get out of this hospital, I am doing that talk. It is going to happen. People need to hear this information. And so I did the talk, uh, having only been out of the hospital for 27 days. And the crazy thing is, I feel like the universe gives you these opportunities. It makes you give a little to get a little. I never did a talk to have it go viral. It was never even a consideration. never even thought that. I don't think that way. That wasn't what I thought. I just wanted people to have good strategies to get healthier because I feel like it's such an important strategy to discuss with our patients. And so that's, you know, that was the, the start of the TED Talk, not realizing that was going to be, um, you know, such a pivotal decision for me to have made. But I think the funny thing is that um, it, it, people always ask me, well, is it a good strategy for men because your talk is focused on women? I said, no, no, the, the, the curators wanted me to focus on women. They wanted someone to focus on a women's health issue. But yeah, it's a great strategy for men and for women. And the really encouraging thing is that every day I get messages from people, either emails or um, you know, social media DMs, people just thanking me. They're like, you know, this is the first thing that's worked for me. I've lost 20 pounds. I'm off my insulin or I'm off my blood pressure medicine, or I suddenly feel strong enough to be able to, you know, reconnect with loved ones. Um, Because really, as healthcare providers, you know, part of our service to others is really providing them with strategies to live their best life. And I think that we've gotten so far away from what that really represents, that to me, to know that it's something that's free and flexible, and they can take with it as they wish, that's fantastic. Like that to me is exciting. Like so exciting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's well, beautiful. It, yeah. And you're, I mean, you're talking about arming people with tools that they can use for lifestyle medicine. And that's one of the things I love that resonates with you is you're all about this lifestyle medicine for, mm-hmm. for, for prevention. But then also if you're already dealing with some chronic health issues, you're still implementing these things and you're just arming these people with these amazing tools that are so simple to use mm-hmm. that have these massive changes. And, you know, and it's funny that you tell that story about how scared you were to do intermittent fasting at the front. Oh, end. yeah. And, and it's so funny because we were all taught the same physiology in school. And if you look at the foundation of how our bodies work, it makes complete sense. Mm-hmm. But how did we get so far away from something so simple that we all should yeah. be doing all the time? Well, I think it's also... Um, <laughs> I was, I was doing a podcast a few months ago and, and, you know, they were talking about the rise of the processed food industry. And, and I, I wrote a book a couple months ago with a colleague. And, and one of the things I had to, part of my contribution to the book was talking about the rise of the processed food industry. I had no idea, you know, after World War II, all these conveniences were brought in for, you know, women that went back to work after the, after the war. And, you know, what started as a great idea to make people's lives easier has morphed and evolved into a chemical, pardon me, can I say shit, shit storm, um, yes. just evolved in this chemical, I mean, stew of disgustingness. There's a great book called um, Salt, Sugar, Fat by Michael Moore. And so that was another book when I read it, it just made me angry. But, you know, you talk about bliss points and food scientists. And so this has contributed to diabetes, you know, high fructose corn syrup, all these things that they try to poo-poo or not the the reasons for why we have all this profound inflammation. But I'm like, when I was a kid, we had three meals a day. My mother was, you know, first generation Italian. You know, there was no snacking in my house. We had, you know, she was, she was crunchy without being super crunchy, but baked her own bread. We ate organ meats. You know, I think about it now. It still makes me cringe. I still don't like liver, but um, I appreciate the fact that she tried to get us to eat those things. But the point being, we've gotten so far away from the way that our bodies are designed to move and eat. We are designed to like eat and then fast. Instead, what we do is we eat all day long and we just stoke this insulin and that's just making us so fat. And you know, if people do nothing else, if they just try to eat meals and not snacks, that will benefit them. You know, Shortening that feeding window benefits them. Um, and it's not, you know, someone said to me, oh, it's just because they're eating less calories. I was like, no, 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 you don't understand the science behind all of this. I mean, that's the really cool thing uh, is that, you know, the more you learn, the more I'm like, this is just amazing. Like I have had so many doubtful physicians, God bless them, my, fa- my friends who were completely convinced they couldn't do intermittent fasting and, were, and do rounds overnight in the hospital. They couldn't work in the ICU and be fasted. And I'll be darned if like, I don't get these messages from them and they're like, 
this really works. Like, I feel like I can share this with my patients because it worked for me. And I'm like, to me, it's like this wonderful domino effect of just sharing great information that, you know, you can impact so many lives. And that to me is so cool. I love that you took it back to just genealogy a little bit. You know, this was something that was just part of daily life. You know, it's so funny how the, this, you know, modern food movement has, has incorporated snacking into our lives. Mm -hmm. And I remember getting ready for dinner, Christmas dinner, whatever, with, with my grandparents who came over from Denmark and they used to like smack the crap out of us if we tried to eat <laughs> or, you know, dinner time or in yeah. between, you know, they used to really get irritated by that because, well, for one thing, as a parent, as we all know, you snack your kids, they're not going to eat that meal. Correct. Um, they're they're going to look for the, the best tasting piece on your plate and mm -hmm. really limits that, that variety of food. And so parents listening you know, this isn't just a strategy to lose weight or, you know, just improve insulin resistance. This is a strategy that absolutely transforms the kid's palate biochemically, their their brain growth and development. I mean, this is built into our very, you know, uh, necessity for biochemistry and neurology and, mm -hmm. and uh, becoming better human beings without that constant addictive cycle of, of uh, that hit of insulin. So it's a, yeah. it's a very real phenomenon. It really is. And it's unfortunate because I, I think that we've been conditioned again uh, that, you know, our kids need to have a, a bag of crap after they have a baseball game or a soccer game. It's like these kids have, you know, maybe run around for 30 minutes. No, they don't need more snacks. Like it used to make me cringe. I would, in fact, I, my kids will talk about this. I'm the embarrassing parent that would bring like fruit, like cut up fruit to like games, you know, as I, I would get stuck with the snack parent, you know, for the week. And, you know, generally the kids would, as they got older, they wouldn't take the fruit, but I would bring bottled water, which my kids thought was increasingly, it was like a lame concept. And then I would try to buy like non-GMO popcorn. Like, okay, maybe the kids all took the popcorn. Maybe they took a water. Rarely would they take a piece of fruit, but we've just conditioned our kids' palates. I agree. They're so sensitized to sugar. And if you look at even like condiments, this is what drives me crazy. I always say, talk about sneaky sugar. It's in condiments, it's in salad dressing. I mean, we're just inundated by sugar all the time. You know, it was interesting. I'll give you an example. The other day, uh, a client said, oh, I, I want to try these jicama chips. And so jicama is a root vegetable. And, you know, it's a, it's a kind of like a combination between a potato and an apple, you know, potato um, consistency, but it's pretty mild. And so I'm, I'm laughing as I'm, you know, looking at this chip and I'm like, there's sugar in this chip. So what, what went from being a fairly healthy alternative to like a potato chip is now a sugary jicama chip. And so I, I took one bite and I was like, I told her, I said, first of all, they're disgusting. Um, I'd rather you just have like Jason's Cardboard. organic. Yeah. It's like, it's just disgusting. I'm like, ugh. Um, no one wants their jicama to be sweet. It just really wasn't very good. But you know, it's, it's, it's one of many examples of, you know, consumerism just driving, you know, people's palate preferences. So mm -hmm. Well, and these poor kids, I mean, you know, my little boy just started kindergarten this year. And one of the big things we're having to work on with him, like you're saying, is like, we're the weird parents that bring yep. the healthy food, right? <laughs> so I drop him off in the cafeteria in the morning, you know, with his class, and all the kids are eating breakfast. Mm -hmm. And the first day we show up, they're eating cinnamon rolls with like chocolate milk. And then the next right. day they have cereal. So of course, like he's eating a healthy meal at home, but he gets to school and he sees that and he's like, mm -hmm. dad, I want that. Mm -hmm. So I have to sit there and explain to him what it's made of, you know, all the bad things that are in it. Mm -hmm. And like you're saying, we're trying to find these healthy replacements for our kids so they don't feel like they're left out and they're not enjoying these things. But helping them create that understanding at that age of why they need to be doing this. Mm -hmm. And and it's so hard because it's it's 24-7. I mean, mm -hmm. like you're saying, we're, we're being bombarded with sugar and it's one of these real toxins that we have all the time. And, and it's really, really difficult to get these little people to, to understand the why there mm -hmm. as well. So, Man, you couldn't have timed that better. Right? He must have heard me. His ears are ringing. <laughs> Diego just walked into the, the camera for those of you listening. I love it. <laughs> I love it. Well, I'm just glad it's not my teenage, teen, teenagers and tweens because they know better. But yeah, that's adorable. <laughs> but I think it's also um, like I got my kids in the kitchen early. And so I have one kid in particular who really likes to cook. And so last night he made an almond flour crust pizza and it was like grass fed um, beef sausage and like heirloom tomatoes and goat cheese. 
And so I put it up on social media and people were like, oh my God, your kids did that? I was like, well, supervision, yeah. But I want to get my kids in the kitchen. I want them to be able to create things that appeal to their palate. I want them to feel comfortable doing that because eventually they will be independent adults. That scares the heck out of me that that will come at some point. But I think it's, it's so, so critical that they understand. Like my little guy, who's not so little, he's 11, uh, but over the summer they, they were taking some, some science classes and uh, the teacher was a vegan. And my son knows how I, I'm very open-minded about a lot of things, but not veganism. And so, uh, you know, he, he, you know she, she very nicely was trying to explain what it was. And my son, you know, kept saying, well, we need animal protein. We, we need to have those healthy fats. We need to, so it was like they were having this ongoing discussion. And she actually said to me, she was like, he was very respectful but it's very evident. He feels very strongly about the type of food that you eat at home. And she's like, I think that's great. And I said, gosh, I, I'm hoping he didn't say anything to embarrass, you know, to embarrass himself. She's like, no, no, he was very respectful, but you know, feeling this whole advocacy for themselves, you know, we've got these growing generations of kids that, you know, some of them feel like maligned or if they, you know, they don't have issues. My older son, he has quite a few friends with food allergies. And so he feels a, a certain degree of safety with them. Like not only can he go to their house, he doesn't have to worry about being exposed to things that might bother him, but he also feels like there's not as much social pressure. Um, if he eats the weird food as he refers to it, he's like, I don't want to be the kid eating the weird food. I'm like, well, sometimes we are the people eating the weird food. Like sometimes I show up to parties with, you know, meals that I bring for myself and I, my friends know me well enough. They're like, just let her do her thing. You know, that's totally fine. But you know what the reality of those, the social pressures for, is felt at the level of the parent, right? Yep. And for, I can't tell you how many patients that, that would walk in with their kids, and so my wife usually sees the, the families, and we have conversations all the time and where, there, where some parents go, you know what, I'm going to take this on, I'm going to make this part of our lifestyle, mm-hmm. and there's still a good chunk of people that go, you know what, I can't do this. I just no, can't. And they're not ready. You know, as, a, as us as the practitioner, we're thinking, like, how could you not do this for your children? You know, and... It, their life, their future, their everything depends on on you doing this, but it just becomes too hard. And it's not passing judgment; it's just a mm-hmm. reality of like, yeah, this isn't the easy path. No, no, it's brain, right? it's mu- it's much harder. And I think it's also that piece that I was raised by parents that taught me that food is fuel. Food was never a source of comfort, and I grew up in a divorced household and was a latchkey kid before it was in vogue. And you know, I have two sets of parents. Um, but I think there are a lot of, you know, children and adults who grew up feeling food is a source of comfort. And if you talk about removing, you know, something that is their coping mechanism, and I'm very sensitive to this, uh, that can really be scary. Like I have clients of my own that have really struggled. Like I know why they've stopped, you know, coming to their sessions because they, they feel like there's, they're not able to make those changes. They're like, you can't take away my rice, my gluten, my cheat, whatever it is that they're sensitive to. They're just not able to like wrap their head around the fact there are all alternatives. I always say there's always an alternative. And, and, you know, there, there is no one I've, it's never, uh, you know, Marie Forleo said there's, she uses the word unfigureoutable, um, which is not a real world. But I, I, I like the fact that she, um, tries to, you know, really emphasize like there's always a solution. And that's always my mindset. I'm like, there will always be a solution. We will always find an alternative. It is never going to be you're alone on an island and unsupported. But you're right. There are definitely people that are just not in a position. They're just not ready. And that's what it comes down to. They're just not ready to make that first step. They're too fearful. Might be fear that's guiding that decision for them, but they're just not ready. Yeah. Well, and I think everybody has a different starting point. You know, you Mm -hmm. said something important. You got to get your kids in the kitchen. You know, Mm -hmm. I see a lot of adults that are in their 30s, even some in their 50s, 60s. They didn't grow up in the kitchen. Mm -hmm. They don't know how to cook. They never learned how to cook. Mm -hmm. So their reality is eating out 24-7 or eating convenience type foods, processed foods, because that's just always been the reality of their life. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you take someone who's now dealing with a chronic degenerative disease or has health issues and you're trying to get them to start to cook and and start to learn these things. And it's like a completely different world for them. And so we're huge advocates as well of like, get your kids in the kitchen, teach them about food, have them cook, because I believe that's where it has to start. And if Mm -hmm. you don't do that for your kids, you are honestly going to set them up for failure because they can't turn into young adults and not know how to cook and be healthy. It's not possible. Absolutely. And it's interesting. So I, I'm married to a, you know, he's an engineer, you know, finance guy. 
And one of the things I loved about my husband when I met him was that he cooked, you know, he was a single guy, you know, I got married at 32 and he was 34. And so you live long enough, you're either going to be eating out, takeout, which is what most of my guy friends did, or you were cooking for yourself. And so now that my husband and I both work from home, my husband actually is the protein guy. So on Sunday night, he's cooking bison, he's cooking, um, you know, beef, he's cooking, um, you know, fish, depending on whatever's going on right now, we're not doing chicken or turkey in our house, which is a whole other story. Um, but he's the one cooking all the proteins because when my kids go to school, they don't want sandwiches. They want a meal. So they're having leftovers from dinner. And so one of my friends was remarking, she was like, I think that's fascinating. Like your kids would rather do like a ragu of like ground bison and ground beef and have that with, I don't know, collie rice or, you know, my kids do some grains. And so that's what they would prefer to have to eat. And they always have a vegetable and always have a fruit and they pack their own lunches now and that's their preference. But, um, I think it's really, really critical. Like my kids see both parents, you know, cooking and we get them involved as well. Like when my youngest started cooking omelets, he thought that was the greatest thing ever because there's never an excuse now for him not to be able to have an omelet. Like over the summer, every day he's got the omelet pan out, he's making an omelet and, you know, making sourdough bread. And, you know, he's got this, you know, really amazing, like locally sourced bacon. And he just felt like he was king of the kitchen. But I agree with you. That's really where it starts from. And, and I think, we have to be sensitive to that as providers that it's meeting our patients where they are mm -hmm. because if we sit in judgment, I mean, we're going to turn people away and that's not what we want to do. Like it could be someone maybe does take out seven days a week or maybe it's, you know, maybe we can turn it around. Maybe we can find ways to make things easier. I always say it's pay or play. Like when you go to the grocery store now, there's so many great options. You can buy pre-cut vegetables. You can buy, you know, kebabs that are already made. You can, you know, buy pre um, rice cauliflower if you're, you know, if you're grain free. And so there's all these nice alternatives. If you're still not in a position where you're really comfortable in the kitchen, there's always a way around it. Or like a slow cooker. I mean, that's the one thing I say. So you can dump a bunch of stuff in a slow cooker. It always tastes good at the end. Well, and I make this joke all the time, but I honestly think one of the next big uh, things in the health arena is going to be these little businesses that teach people how to cook. We have a couple because locally. Because I honestly think there are massive amounts of people that just need basic training on how to yeah. how to work in the kitchen. Yeah, I agree. And actually, I, I have a couple resources locally, and there are a few women that just they you know they're high powered executives. They don't have the time, and so they hire out. And so I've got a couple chefs that will go into their kitchen, make everything for them, put it in the refrigerator. I know that's not realistic, but I agree with you that we've lost this art of cooking, and that's really what it's designed to be. Like when I was growing up, my parents took great pride in watching me create things in the kitchen, even if it didn't taste good, they were just happy. <laughs> I was cooking something. Um, even if it was a, you know, a box of pasta and some, you know, prepackaged sauce, they were happy. They're like, okay, these are, these are life skills. You're, you know, you're creating something. This is creative. This is important. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Well, I like to think of it even just that level of the nervous system, you know, how, what helps it establish that parasympathetic tone is, is smelling Mm -hmm. the spices being in the meditative space while you're cooking like that's really where digestion begins is when you start thinking in the brain yeah so the brain. it's a powerful tool so i want to i want to move back into uh fasting a little bit and talk about what does it mean for a woman to start to adopt a fasting schedule so that it is supporting and nurturing them um and this could be this could be for men too but women also with any concerns around body image, because I know when we bring in the word fasting for people, we think we're going to waste away, mm -hmm. be nothing left of us. And what does that mean from a triggering mechanism, maybe from the past, uh, whether it be an eating disorder, bulimia, et cetera, et cetera. Um, how do we, or how do you uh, help women through this conversation? Because it's a really important one. Yeah, no, it's a great, those are some great questions. So we always start off with, you know, while you're sleeping at night, that counts. So people say, oh my gosh, I can't do like 16 more hours after sleeping. And I always remind them, you probably are fasting already. You just don't realize you're doing it. So if you eat dinner at six and you don't eat your breakfast till eight o'clock, that's 14 hours fasted. I mean, you're already a rock star. Mm -hmm. um, so a lot of it's the conditioning that you're not going to die. You know, that there's a big concern that, you know, we've been conditioned to believe that breakfast is the most important meal of the day. And I start to explain to them, these are the benefits everyone focuses on weight loss, or at least women do. But I was like, there's so many more benefits, you know, autophagy, that spring cleaning of the cells, you know, talking about lowered insulin levels, talking about lower blood pressure and improved cognition and reduction in, you know, 
your likelihood of developing type 3 diabetes. So we kind of walk them through a typical day. Like you're either feeding or fasting. Those are the, those are the only two options. And so maybe you start off with 14 hours and then um, we may increase it by 30 minutes every couple of days. And, you know, strategies to get through that, like you can drink water, you can drink plain coffee, you can drink plain tea, um, and explaining what some of those attributes in tea and coffee can be beneficial. And so I'm always staying attuned to someone's history. If someone has had a disordered relationship with food, especially the anorexics in particular, they sometimes can take the concept of uh, intermittent fasting and kind of run with it. Sometimes they'll give themselves an excuse not to eat at all. So it's really teasing out who's appropriate for that. And so obviously sometimes people are not. And I always explain it's not a deficiency in you. It's just not meant to work for every single person. But we start off with strategies of what to do while you're fasting, distraction. You know, if someone's watching their clock from 8 o'clock in the morning till 12 and trying to make that, you know, to that 16-hour window and they're miserable, I'm like, you got to go take a walk, get yourself busy, get away from, you know, the, the mindset of, not focusing on what's what you're missing, focusing on what you're benefiting from, like what are the benefits? And then talking about how are you gonna choose to break your fast? That's always a really critical piece. Some people are not ready to eat a meal per se when they initially break their fast. And so I kind of walk them through options, sorry. Um, I try to walk them through options of foods that they can consume. And then talking about really tightening up that feeding window because if they stay within you know, an eight or a six hour window, I find that people do really well. Um, I'm not necessarily a devotee of the one meal a day. I know that I have, you know, many people I know in my social scene that that really works well for them. I, I don't find that works particularly well for women. Women usually do two good sized meals during their eight hour feeding window. Um, and then just making sure they're staying really hydrated. And once your feeding window is done, it's done. But the great thing is it's totally flexible. So if you're traveling different time zones, you can adjust it based on the time zone you're going to. If someone wants to drink alcohol, have a sweet you know, whether it's a dessert, I always say eat it within your feeding window, just adjust your feeding window. If you know you're going out to dinner with friends and you want to be able to enjoy a good meal. So it's not about deprivation. It's all about moderation. So you can still eat fun foods. You can still do that within your feeding window. That's usually the strategy I kind of start with a very basic one. I mean, there are more advanced strategies, but I find that most people that suffices really well. And actually I'm reading I am reading a good book right now, which I know you are familiar with, and now I'm, I'm like trying to find it on my desk. Um, my kids were in here earlier, which is kind of funny. I'll be able, I'll show it to you later. But yeah, it's it's really been uh, for many many of the women I work with, it's really been pivotal. And the other piece is when women's hormones really start to shift north of like late 30s. Uh, for many people, it is one of the few things that will work really well. Now, it doesn't work for everyone, and I always say that if you start intermittent fasting as a woman. And you're not getting the results you want. And it's almost always focused on weight loss. There are other things that might be at play. And so that's, that's where we really start peeling back. I always say, you know, I make the onion analogy. There's always something that could be contributing to that. And so really looking at like peeling back a layer. Is it a food sensitivity? Is it that your sleep is terrible? Is it that your stress levels are out of control? Um, really looking hormonally, what could be going on in the body, what supports are needed. But I think it's a great first step. And I think for men and for women, it seems like the men have an easier time losing weight um, if they're kind of stuck. Uh, but I think, you know, there are they're out of all the strategies that are available, I think this is something people can do long term, which really is what makes it beautiful. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I love that. And one of the things that I can't help but, but educate people on is, is that sometimes when you eat is, is more important than what you're eating. And, I, mm -hmm. and the labs, the, the, the blood work that we do prove it time and time again. And it's not, it's not to say that people don't have to obviously still make changes in their diet, but this is something, as you've said, this, this strategic way of slowly closing the gap is an amazing tool that, that sort of bides you some time while you're making those bigger life adjustments of, uh, of what to eat. So that, that really helped to, I hope it helped a lot of the, the female listeners as well just to see this adaptation tool. And it, it sort of does get back to that core thing that, um, Breakfast is, in fact, the most important meal of the day. It's just when are you having that breakfast, right? Yeah. Yeah. I saw something interesting on social media today on Twitter, in fact, and uh, someone said, my breakfast is my fat cells shrinking or something like that. It was just they were trying to make the comment of, you know, you can get by without eating and you just recognize what's going on and you've got this, you know, amazing thermogenic burn that's going on, especially if you've exercised fasted. Mm -hmm. So lots of different strategies that you can use, but really, really effective. And 
you know, someone said to me the other day, oh, it's a trendy concept. I said, no, no, it actually dates back to biblical times. It's not trendy. It's just, it's become more popular, I think, as people are becoming more comfortable with, you know, kind of pressing up against the status quo of, oh gosh, I've got to get up and eat in the morning. I'm like, our bodies really aren't designed to eat first thing in the morning. We're just conditioned to believe that we have to eat when we get up in the morning. Otherwise our day is going to be ruined. And that's just really not the case. Well, I also think that like there's, sorry, Dave, I don't know you, you want to jump in on a question here. I think that there's collectively, there's, there's a, there's a universal consciousness at play here. There's an absolute need for it in the times that we live in. And so there's a reason for popularity to move with collective consciousness. Just like, you know, once one person figured out how to fly a plane, everybody was doing it. It was, it mm-hmm. was the thing. Right now, it's out of necessity that we find a way to change the trajectory of these illnesses because if we look at stats, they're not improving. There's, there's yep. nothing with all the medications in the chronic illness world. There's nothing that's actually moving the needle. This perhaps is the tool that can help to, to really shake things up. Go ahead, David. Well, and you're talking about, we talked about the other day, absolute truths versus relative truths. You know, you go worldwide and, and you, leave, you leave the United States and fasting is a very regular thing in a lot of other countries. Mm-hmm. And, and you, like you're saying, Cynthia, you, you talk to people here and like, oh, it's just a fad. And it's like, no, it's not. We've been doing this for centuries and you mm-hmm. leave the U.S. and this is a very normal thing that people do all the time. They don't eat 24-7. They don't have food in front of them 24 hours a day and they're just constantly snacking. And and it's it's so crazy when you just have this conversation with individuals where they think, oh gosh, I have to go without food. I'm going to starve to death. And and that you know when it first started getting popular, that was the conversations that I would always have. Is like, I can't not eat breakfast. I'll fall over and pass out. <laughs> kind of looking at them like, no, you won't. You'll be completely mm-hmm. fine. Yeah. Um, you got to embrace that adaptation, right? Um, so yeah, I mean, to to our listeners, like Cynthia was talking at the very beginning of this podcast. Think for yourself. Mm-hmm. Think outside the box. Use your brain. Don't let mm-hmm. other people think for you because mm-hmm. honestly, that's where those answers are to mm-hmm. get you well. Well, I think it's also very intuitive. I mean, to me, fasting is very intuitive. I listen, I can intrinsically understand, you know, my stomach can grumble. It doesn't mean I'm hungry. Like, what are the real ways I feel when I'm really hungry? And that's what I respond to. And, you know, something that's worth adding is that. There, there seems to be a mindset that if you're doing intermittent fasting, you have to ascribe to a particular dietary philosophy. And I just want to make sure that I mention intermittent fasting works with a, a multiple modal, multiple ways of, of eating our food. You don't have to be ketogenic. You don't necessarily have to be low carb. You don't necessarily have to be paleo. What I do find is less processed diets are what work. Um, if you have a lot of weight to lose, ketogenic might be a great option. Um, I personally carb cycle. I get asked this question all the time. I carb cycle and I, I'm really boring. If I tell you what my diet is like right now, um, cause we've had a lot of shifts since I left the hospital cause my digestion has just not been as optimized as it was before. Um, even six months later, which is really kind of sad, but people always want to, I'm gluten grains, dairy and oxalate free, which means my world is a little small right now, but that's okay. I'm pushing through. Like I actually told my husband when I had to knock out the oxalates as a gluten free grains free person. I was like, oh my God, what the heck am I going to eat? You know? um, but you get through it. You, know, you want to get better and that's ultimately what you, what, where your focus is. But to make sure everyone understands, you don't have to do keto NIF. Like, I get constant questions. In fact, I created like another FAQ for my website because I got the question so much. I was like, no, you can be ketogenic and not do IF. You can do IF and not be ketogenic. They're not like indispensable of one another. So important distinction to make. Well, and I have a lot of people the easiest way because they don't want to change their their diets you know drastically at first mm-hmm. right when we talk about these people's starting point just doing some intermittent fasting and i tell them and just eat real food just start mm-hmm. there mm-hmm. that's that's hard that's enough huge. for some people yeah, yeah. and huge. so that's where i start a lot of my my clients is just look do that window find your eating window and just start eating real food and it does amazing things like you're saying like it's it, and they come back like two weeks later they're like oh my energy is so much better and i'm sleeping better and my brain's clear and you're just yeah. like yeah it's that simple yeah and i think again it goes back to basics like i will oftentimes say we need to get back to basics we need to sleep we need to poop we need to fast um you know there's always a running variation in my head of like getting back to basics you know it does not have to be complicated um, nothing makes me more frustrated and upset when people, you know, I'll, I'll use the example, um, Beachbody. So Beachbody pushes this 
horrible Shakeology. I don't know if you're familiar with it. It's complete garbage. And so I was amazed one night. I have a friend who was talking about how wonderful these shakes are. And so I looked at the package and I tasted it. And I said, that is probably the worst thing I've ever tasted. It's $100 a bag. So all these women are buying into this crap. Or Isogenics is another one. Sorry. That's okay. Um, you know, just recognizing I have noisy dogs. My kids are running to go get them quiet. They're um, protesting as well. They, they, yeah, it's they, you know, <laughs> yeah. My dogs do not fast. My dogs are pretty. They know. They let me know what time it is. They're they're like clocks. Um, but just this whole concept that we have to buy the latest pill or potion or powder. Yeah. Uh, and I'm like, like you mentioned, just getting back to basics. You know, eating real food. You will do much much better. People say all the time, "Well, can't you recommend a?" protein powder. And I'm like, I could, but I'd rather you eat the food. I think your body really needs the food. You need to chew it and you need to swallow it. It needs to hit your stomach so you get full. And I find when people are really focused on shakes and potions and powders, they don't get full. So then they're eating more food. And people are like, oh, but I love my smoothie. I put like 95 different things in it. I'm using like that Kamu Kamu and I'm using maca and I'm doing this, I'm doing that. And I'm like, save your money go buy some really good grass fed beef or go buy some wild caught fish. Um, I'd rather you do that. So. Well, and I think a little bit of that paradigm is that magic bullet thinking that conventional medicine has created for people that there's a pill, there's an easy fix. Right. And I think that's, that's slowly dissipating in the U S people are starting to realize like, Oh wow, there isn't a magic bullet. You know, there isn't this quick fix. And like, I'm actually going to have to put some work into my health. And it's like you're saying, you had individuals at the front end, the ones that were willing to do the work that you had those, those answers for. And I think that's just, that's what, this is what it's all about is mm-hmm. there, there is work when it comes to wanting to be healthy and there is no magic bullet. And you gotta, if, if, if that's the case, you're upside down right now and you mm-hmm. need to just 180 it and realize that the answer is on the other side. Yeah. yeah. So on that, on that note, um, you've got so much to share for, for women, men alike your message is so powerful. It's so important. Uh, we want our listeners to be able to find find you, to reach you, to follow you. What what are the best ways for them to to get in touch with you? And keep, keep yeah. Um, so my website is www.cynthiathurlow.com. Um, I am active on Twitter and Instagram. I'm also on Facebook. Uh, we just did a brand revision. So my my old business name was CHT Wellness. You may find that as well. I'm all, it's all one and the same person, but I've got a great FAQ on intermittent fasting that I find a lot of people have benefited from answers a lot of like the most frequent questions I receive. So I'd love for you to check things out. Definitely. And, uh, any upcoming talks, Ted talks, workshops, anything that, that are coming down the pipeline that people can look for, look out for as well? Yeah, I'm going to be, um, so my, my newest thing is I'm going to be out in LA. I'm going to be on, um, go morning, La La Land. Um, so out in LA next month. Um, I actually turned down another TED talk because now I'm I'm kind of in the position like after the second TED talk, I'm never, there's never going to be a TED talk like that again. Um, and so I'm just going to just enjoy and savor and bask in, in all the amazingness that's going on. But there's a lot of, I've gotten connected with um, some pretty incredible people in New York. So there's a lot coming down the pike, a couple programs that are coming out this fall that um, women may really enjoy. Um, you can find more information out on my website. But yeah, I'm always looking forward. So there's things that are brewing. They're just not solidified, but definitely in LA next next month. That's really exciting. So one of, one of the things that uh, we get all of our uh, guests to to share with us is, is a little bit of home play. We, we encourage people to start somewhere and some of the topics that we've discussed. And so um, I know we hit a few points, uh, but if we could sort of like fine tune it for people who are maybe are new to, to some of the work that you're, that you're sharing here, what, what's, some, what's a good home play for people to, to dive into? Mm, I would say start with 12 hours of fasting and slowly open it up from there. Uh, I would encourage everyone to try to eat less from a box, a bag, or a can. And if, you're, if you do eat those things, less ingredients. If you can't recognize the ingredient, don't eat it. And then thirdly, I would say really good quality sleep is absolutely critical. It is foundational to our health. We are, we are unfortunately in a society that doesn't value sleep. Mm. So one of the strategies that I work on with my patients is wearing blue blocking glasses. Like typically I have them on at five o'clock. My kids laugh at me. Everyone in my house has them. I'm really the only one who wears them consistently, but I put them on as soon as it starts getting dusk and I wear them until I go to bed. It makes a huge impact on my sleep quality. And I'll explain to your listeners why. 
um, melatonin starts being secreted in the later parts of the afternoon. And so what happens if we're exposed to all this junk light, like from our computers and the TV, it will you know, disrupt the secretion of that melatonin hormone that tells our body it's time to go to bed. And so what it'll do is actually tap into cortisol, which is the hormone that tells us to be awake and alert. And you think about the wired and tired feeling we get later in the evening. And so just being very respectful of our sleep hygiene, um, that's the first thing trying to sleep in a cold, dark room. If any of you have wives that are middle-aged or older, you understand that like temperature for us is, you know, I'd say high 60s at, at most in the evening. I mean, I want the air conditioning on in cold, cold, dark room. Maybe you're wearing an eye mask, um, but just getting into the habit of really um, emphasizing sleep hygiene is absolutely critical for men and women alike. Mm -hmm. Love that. Um, Cynthia, it's been an absolute honor to have you on the, the call. I know you've got a very full schedule. It was, it was we really appreciate the fact that you took some time out to speak with us today. Yeah. Uh, David, any last words for our for everybody? You're a wellness rock star. Just keep doing it. I, I see huge things coming for you. So thank you again. This was a blessing for us to have you with us and for our listeners. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Really an honor. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed today's podcast, please be sure to subscribe to The Dr. Dads and share with your family and friends. You can also follow and interact with Dr. Nick and Dr. David on Facebook and Instagram for a daily dose of inspiration and the latest in health and wellness. Be well.